Good morning, friends. Good to see everybody here today. Welcome to Generations. And uh, I'm just thrilled that you're with us today. And uh, we have this chance to worship the Lord together this morning. Hasn't it just been amazing? Just the Spirit of the Lord is so sweet in this place. Today, we are probably finishing up today our Resilient series. We've been looking at these stories of these courageous women in Scripture. These are women who have overcome incredible odds to make an incredible impact in their society, their culture, uh, the, the, whatever they, has happened to these women. We see case after case. They, these are people who don't let uh, the, the circumstances in their life keep them down. They don't let being marginalized or looked down upon or neglected or even abused stop them from whatever the beautiful destiny is that God has for them and the ways he wants to use them. Today, uh, I'm excited. We're getting uh, two women for the price of one. Uh, we're going to look at two women here by the name of Shifra and Pua. Some of you may not have heard these names before. They're not as famous as some of the people in the Bible, but you are going to love these ladies when we're done. These are two women who work together in the Bible to make this radical countercultural stand. They, they commit this amazing act of defiance against the highest authority in the land, uh, disobeying the state itself. Um, when the orders that they've been given go against what they know is the heart of God. And in the process, as we're looking at this today, these women are going to bring up uh, an interesting conundrum for us, which is this. Is it ever okay to break one commandment in order to fulfill a higher law? Hmm. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking with uh, Dan and uh, you guys in the Saturday morning men's breakfast and Bible study, uh, which is a great, awesome Bible study. If you guys haven't ever, um, if you're a man and you haven't uh, been a part of that, you need to go check it out. Saturday mornings, they have a great time. Uh, but a couple of weeks ago, they got into a similar discussion uh, about the famous story of Corey Ten Boom. Have you heard of her? Corey Ten Boom, she wrote the famous book, The Hiding Place. I think it was made into a movie. Um, and uh, it's this inspiring story of these Dutch Christians during World War II who make the countercultural decision to uh, hide Jews from the Nazis. And the Nazis had swept into Holland and uh, they were hiding the Jews. And it began with one baby and then it, it continued more adults over time. Adults came and actually when the, when the Nazis and the Gestapo were rounding up the Jews in the neighborhood, these guys were, this family was building false walls in their home, like secret rooms uh, to hide the Jews and save as many lives as they could. And now that took courage, right? Because they could get in trouble if they got caught. Um, but it also took courage because this was a time when a lot of the, uh, their Christian neighbors, and, and Holland at the time was a very Christian country, but their Christian neighbors were saying, well, you know what, the Christian thing to do is just obey the authorities and let's just go with the flow. And it took courage to actually say, no, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. The Christian thing to do, the Christ-like thing to do is to obey the authority of Christ, to live by the law of love, even if that puts us in tension with the authorities of our culture, the legal authorities, or the culture at large, their neighbors, their society. And, and they had to decide, like, how do we make the right choice here? Which is, what's the right thing to do here? And, and that raises another question for us today, that issue of lying for love, because the cause was love. The cause here was, was certainly love. Part of hiding the Jews in the uh, Ten Boom house was 
lying to the authorities when they came by. Hey, you have any Jews here? Nope, no Jews here, right? Uh, nope, nothing's happening here. We don't know what you're talking about. And they became very good at the art of deception for the cause of righteousness. Let me say that again. They became good at the art of deception for the cause of righteousness. Uh, is this ever acceptable? A, for a Christian to disobey the authority figures in their life. And B, is it ever acceptable to break the law of God against lying? Uh, because last time I checked, I haven't looked at the Ten Commandments recently, but I think that's one of the top ten, right? Isn't lying up there? I think it is. Yeah, lying's up there. Is it ever actually acceptable to break the rules for the cause of, the, of greater love? As we've seen in this series uh, several times already, um, there's so many brilliant examples in the Scriptures planted for us of women and men uh, who lead us to ask How do you capture the spirit of the law moving beyond our fixation with the letter of the law to see the heart of God in the law and then follow that? Because that's what we want. We want that heart of God in the law. Because, you know, any idiot can uh, obey a list of rules. Any, any of us could be given a list of rules, follow these, okie doke. We can do that. Uh, That does not grow out of a transformed heart. That I followed the rules doesn't mean my heart's been transformed. You can legislate uh, moral laws, right? It doesn't create transformed hearts, which is what the church is called to pursue in people. We are called the church. Now, uh, laws are great. Moral laws are good. But the church's goal, our job, is to trans- help transform hearts, lead people, not to act more like Christians, not to act more Jesus-y, but to actually have their hearts transformed by Jesus from the inside out. So he actually makes them into Christians, right? Not just act more Christians. We, we want to help people become Christians. So Jesus calls us, he calls us to get to know the lawmaker so that we can go beyond just following the rules. But now we know the heart of God, the heart of God behind the rules, who not only teaches us the rules, but he'll teach us how to break them when love is the ultimate goal. Now, our sinful nature, and this, every one of us are born with this nature, just human, we have this sinful nature, it doesn't really have a problem breaking rules. And we know that if you have any children, you don't have to teach them how to break a rule, do you? They just seem to do that really naturally. We don't have a problem breaking rules when it benefits us. And it's kind of funny, we'll go, you know, five miles over the speed limit in order, when, you know, when it helps get us there faster and everyone else is doing it, right? We can justify that. Some people, some people might even cheat on their taxes uh, to put some extra money in their pocket. That doesn't make them revolutionary rebels like we admire. Wow, way to go, way to cheat on your taxes. No, 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 it just makes you a committer of fraud, right? You're just a criminal. You just, you just cheated. So it's, it's not like any great noble thing just to break the rules. When it comes to, our, especially when it comes to our tribes, the groups that we identify with, you ever notice we will excuse very unethical behavior when it's our team, right? Because, well, yeah, but we did it to win, right? Any Astros fans out there? Uh, I know, I know it hurts, right? <laughs> I'm a fan of a, of a team the entire country hates right now, except for this tiny little geographical spot on the map called Houston, right? They're cheaters, but there are cheaters, right? <laughs> when it's our 
our political party. Unethical behavior, it helps our side to win. Jesus teaches us something different, though. He teaches us the superior way of love and self-sacrifice. Self-sacrifice. So we can have the courage to break a rule when it doesn't benefit us, but it does offer us a chance to lay down our life for other people. See, it's a whole different way of thinking. This is kingdom thinking we're learning here at Generations Church. So with that in mind, if you have your Bibles, open them up with me to Exodus. That's the second book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus. We're going to start right in the first chapter. The book of Exodus begins uh, with a familiar struggle. My goodness, it could have been plucked right out of today's headlines. Um, today's conspiracy theories. My heart has been heavy this week. I'm sure many of yours has too. This shooting that's now a week old uh, that happened up in Buffalo. This person came, went and senselessly murdered 10 uh, mostly black men and women in a grocery store. And then as the, the story came out, as we learned more about the shooter's motives, we start to hear more about these like conspiracy theories that are driving him and this, this idea, anybody heard of replacement theory, right? That's all, that's the buzzwords in the news now uh, because that was one of these things that's driving the shooter. And I'm reading the story these past couple of weeks that we're studying today and I am struck, oh my Lord, this is not a new problem. This is a new conspiracy this has literally been around for like 4,000 years, right? Oh my goodness. Um, so let me summarize real quickly the first 14 verses before we get uh, to these two heroines in our story today. Exodus opens with the family of Joseph. Uh, everybody remember Joseph, the amazing coat? And, uh, you know, he got sold into slavery, he went to Egypt, he got sold to slavery in Egypt. Then he becomes, you know, he rises up, God elevates him and he becomes second in command of Egypt. He's ruler of Egypt. Then his brothers and his father come to see him and he's surprised, I'm your son. And they come and they end up coming to move to Egypt because there's a famine in the land. And so the whole family, the Exodus opens with the family of Joseph and his 11 brothers. Hundreds of years later, these will become the 12 tribes of Israel. But as Exodus begins, it's just this small extended family. They move to Egypt and they settle. And over the generations, they're settling in Egypt. Over the generations, they're welcomed by the people of Egypt. Uh, they're welcomed there. They contribute to the Egyptian economy. Uh, even while the Hebrew people continue to thrive and they multiply and they multiply and they multiply. Here's the, but there comes a time when Pharaoh has an interesting dilemma. These Hebrews living in the land... They've always been good citizens, but there's something off about them. They've like kept to their own culture. They've kept to, they have like their own religion. And, and they, they haven't assimilated into good patriotic Egyptians like everybody else has. And now they're growing into this sort of large subculture right there in the middle of Egypt. And so now they present Egypt with this sort of security threat to the Pharaoh, right? On one hand, having these Hebrews, as a lower-level workforce, that, that's really been good for the economy. They've been good for Egypt. They have, the Hebrews have helped build the, the roads and the cities and harvest the crops and build monuments and pyramids, all that good stuff. Egypt had an interesting taxation system. This is a side note. It was fun researching this out. You know, uh, you know here in our society, we have an income tax. So as you, you work, you pay a little bit of portion of your 
your income in income tax. Egypt did it a little differently. Instead of paying a little bit of every, every paycheck, uh, what you did was you went into service for like a month. And that is what you did. You devoted one month of service, kind of like going into the military or something today. You devoted a month of service to the state and you worked for the state. And that was kind of like paying your taxes. It was like an 8% tax rate, right? So you did that for a month. And if you didn't have the money, you had to work. So that's what they were doing. So having lots of workers and these Hebrews working for the economy, this is good for the country. But on the other hand, these Hebrews can't exactly be counted on to be loyal to the nation. You know, uh, Egypt was constantly being attacked by outside powers. Everybody wanted the wealth of Egypt. So they were always under attack. There were uprisings from within. And they, like I said, these Hebrews, they, they don't worship Egyptian gods. They speak a different language at home. They don't bow to the Pharaoh. They're just different than the rest of Egyptians. They don't pledge allegiance to the flag. They're weird. They're the other. The other. As we know, nothing stokes fear so much as labeling something the other. Right? The other. And this is Pharaoh's dilemma. Their labor is this national asset, but they are also a national threat because he can't really be sure that they won't turn against Egypt. So what does he do? He moves them gradually through these steps. He moves them from just having a minority status workforce to a slave force. He changes their status. And Pharaoh, it says in the scriptures, he begins to drive them just mercilessly to produce, produce, produce. And what Pharaoh's really after is he's thinking after he pushes them so hard to the point that they'll begin to die off. He'll keep enough, you know, there in the land for breeding, but he won't have to worry about them infecting Egyptian culture with their ways, their strangeness. But here's the problem. The Hebrews don't die off. They don't die off as he thought they would. They reproduce and they reproduce. And he works them hard all day long. And I guess they don't have Xbox at home. There's nothing else to do. So they come home and reproduce. They just keep reproducing, right? And, uh, and when you, that's all they have to do with their time. So the more he tries to drive them and beat them down, the more babies they have. And so here's where Pharaoh now moves to the next stage of his final solution, right? This racist, xenophobic, Nazi-like public policy. He doesn't just discriminate against them. Now he moves to something more radical, which is extermination. Call it genocide, call it ethnic cleansing, whatever we call it today. It comes to the same thing. He decrees death to all male Hebrew babies for one generation. He says that should take care of them. Notice what all of this is motivated by. What's the one thing motivating Pharaoh? Thank you. Fear. Let's pick it up here in verse 15. We're getting to our, our heroes here. Exodus 1, verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, here's what's something interesting. It says Hebrew midwives. Because of a little quirk of the, the grammar here, this could mean that they were Hebrew women. But scholars are not so sure that these women were not Hebrews, but actually there's a good reason from the text and the way the story goes to believe that they were actually Egyptian nurses in charge, who've been placed in charge of overseeing uh, the delivery of Hebrew babies. So it could mean midwives that are Hebrew, or it could mean midwives to the Hebrews. Just uh, interesting. There's going to be some evidence for that later in the stories we're going to see. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose name were Shifra and Puah, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, that sounds comfy, the delivery stool, 
is this kind of stone seat uh, they would sit on uh, to, you know, help. Uh, in fact, it's interesting. I was looking, they, they, it's still used by Egyptian midwives to this day, this particular livery stool. Also interesting, it's not a method of birth in common in Hebrew culture. Hmm. So another little clue who these ladies might be. If you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. Just awful. Verse 17 says, The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Amen. Interesting detail here also when it says they feared God. Typically, when it's speaking of Jews in the Old Testament, it would say that they fear Yahweh, or you'll have that big word LORD on all caps in your Bibles sometimes. Here, the word used is Elohim, which is a, more of a generic name for God, which is something you would usually use for foreigners who would come to know God. Again, suggesting Shifra and Pua were actually Egyptian women, women disobeying their Pharaoh, right? And so somehow, though they don't seem to have, they don't apparently have a real uh, intimate relationship with this God they have come to believe in him, right? Because he's, he's the Elohim that they fear. So now something else, that, that Pharaoh here, he does everything possible. He gives them every opportunity to actually feel good about what he's asked them to do, to rationalize what he's done. The word used for kill here is not the word for murder, which, you know, that would be a terrible thing to do. But what he uses is the word for execute, and so he's trying to help them believe, what I'm asking you to do, ladies, this is not anything you need to feel bad about. This isn't cold-hearted murder. No, no, no. This is, you're fulfilling the will of the state here. This is state-sanctioned execution, right? Because we're fighting a war here, guys. We're fighting a war. This is your patriotic duty. You have the blessing of the state behind you to perform these executions because we are under threat, He's helping them to understand the moral responsibility lies with me, the Pharaoh, not with you. You don't have to feel bad about this. And this is not a small detail because every day you and I are pressured in so many different ways. So many ways, some of them are obvious, some of them are not so obvious, but we're pressured to respond and react not in a Jesus-y way, but not, not, not as representatives of the kingdom of God, but to respond as partisans, as good patriots. How, many, how often are we called upon, pressured, to respond this way? If you're a good American or if you're a good Canadian, we have people uh, from all over the world who are watching their podcast, uh, watching this right now. If you're, you know, you're a good Nigerian or you're a good Guatemalan, whatever it is, you're, you know, wherever it is you live right now as you're watching this, you'll stand for this. You'll, you'll do this, or you'll be willing to do or act this way towards other people because this is your duty. This is our, our very life is under attack. The, the church is constantly being, I, hear, I see this on my Twitter feed all the time from, from ministers. The, our, our way of life is under attack. We're constantly being warned. And you know what? It's interesting. If, you, if you've been watching the news, what's happening over in Europe, this is not just the, uh, an issue with the American church. Right now, at this very moment, Millions of our, our Russian brothers and sisters are being told, not by just the Russian government, by the, the church, the official Russian Orthodox Church, are being told that to be a good, God-fearing Russian is to support Putin's mass extermination and his war crimes being perpetrated against the Ukrainians. Every single day, this is what they're getting. See, so this isn't anything new. 
This isn't something that ought to be weird to us. It's what happens when you see the church gets in bed with the empire. There's this weird little thing. It gets this cozy little confusion of, of patriotism and religion. And when patriotism, which I'm, I love in my country, I love America, it's nothing wrong with being a patriot, but when you start to meld your patriotism with your religion together, they come together, they make this demon baby called nationalism. Anybody heard of that? Right? And that's what we hear also in the news today. There's this talk against this. There's something ooh, really icky and unchristiany, unchristlike, when our patriotism gets all wrapped up in our religion, rather than, see, the alternative is the church standing out as a brave, as a peculiar people who insist on love over hate, or to insist on self-sacrifice over self-preservation. But that's not what we're told by our leaders, right? I got two amens I heard in the room. Y'all, whoever y'all were, y'all are my people. You're my lifeline. Shifra and Pua have a choice. They have a choice. They can be good, zealous Egyptians, patriots to the, to the Pharaoh, or they can be good image bearers of God. And in this case, it is a stark choice. And somehow, miraculously, incredibly, these Egyptian, probably, women get a glimpse of what God is really like of the character of this God, this, this Yahweh, the Hebrews worship. And they're able, which is just amazing when you think about it, the pressure they're under, they are able to self-identify according to something greater than nationality, something greater than that. And they refuse to obey this wicked order. This is a 3,500-year-old display of civil disobedience, right? This is pretty cool. Now, it's easy for us to look at this and go, okay, well, okay, so they didn't kill babies. That's great. Of course they didn't do that. Who would do such an insane, inhuman act? But what we know now is, is human behavior is an interesting thing. It is a lot easier than we want to admit for people to um, rationalize doing horrible things when they can hide behind a higher authority uh, that's telling them to do it, or a cultural norm that tells them it's okay to do it right? There's something about our soul, our mind. It's just the way we're wired. Human beings want absolution. And if we can get absolution, it makes us feel so much better, right? We want to be absolved of our sins by a higher authority. That's why, you know, a lot of Christians go to, uh, go to a priest to give them that absolution, that higher authority. You know, he's, he's there. He's like the representative of God, and he, he says, you're okay now. Whew, there's something very real that that just does to your soul, right? It just makes you feel so much better. How many of you have ever heard of the um, famous Milgram experiments from the 1960s? Anybody heard this? If, 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 taking you back, if you took uh, Psych 101, there is a, this famous, I'll, I'll just briefly describe it. It was interesting. A famous psychological experiment was done uh, by this man named Stanley Milgram. And it produced uh, some pretty shocking results, no pun intended, that it totally changed forever our understanding of, of psychiatry, psychology, social dynamics. Uh, in a nutshell, here's what Stanley Milgram would do. He took these two volunteers, and he would have them come into his little lab. One of them would be strapped to a bunch of electrodes in a chair with a bunch of electrodes and wires and everything like that. The other one, uh, he would have seated at a control panel. And uh, it would have a bunch of dials, and they would have a button that would deliver a little shock 
to the other volunteer. And, uh, and then, so what they would do, the controller would be told, this is a experiment about memory and word matching. And so you're going to say some, uh, a list of words, and the person uh, over there, he's going to try to re- remember all the words in order. And if he gets anything wrong, you just, just give him a little shock. We're going to see if, like, that, you know, the threat of getting a little shock helps him remember better. I feel like it would help me remember better, um, although it would be stressful. So, they would, so the, the, the guy with the button would see the other one strapped in, and then what they would do, it's very interesting, they would move him behind a curtain so he couldn't see him. It was step one in dehumanizing that person. And so he's back there. They say the list of words. They give the little button to see if he, if he doesn't get everything right. Now, the extra bonus of this all was, was every time that the other subject got a word wrong and got a shock, the voltage went up. And, he, and so this person with the button has in front of him this little uh, uh, meter. I, I saw these pictures. They're so funny. Uh, this thing on front of him, it says, mild, medium, extreme, and deadly. <laughs> I love that they put deadly on there just to make sure. And it said 450 volts it was marked. 400. Now, here's the big catch. What the person did not know was that the person strapped into all the wires and the electrodes was actually in on the whole experiment. They weren't getting shocked at all, okay? Because the whole purpose of the experiment was actually not about memory. It was about power and coercion. They were the one being studied. How far would someone go when an authority figure tells them to do something that is harmful to another person. What's fascinating is if you read the, the, the story, they asked a bunch of psych, psychologists before the experiment, they asked them to predict, what do you think, what percentage of people do you think will go all the way to the end and administer 450 deadly volts in this science experiment at a university? Most of the psychologists predicted one-tenth of one percent. One-tenth of one percent will have this, like, evil gene that'll be like, oh, this is my big chance to kill somebody in the name of science. Yeah, you know, just not many people. One-tenth of one percent. The results, 60 to 70 percent of subjects, everyday citizens like you and me, went all the way. 60 to 70 percent, that's scary, (laughs) What would happen is as the voltage went up, as the voltage went up, it got higher and higher. The subject, they even had the person yell out. They would yell louder. They would scream as if they were in increasing amounts of pain. And the controllers, the ones who were actually being studied, it said that they would feel really anxious. They would act uncomfortable. They would get flustered. They would protest and say, I don't think I can keep doing this. And the researcher would simply say, please continue. It's important you continue the test. So they would put it up another one, hit the button. And, and the people would scream out. They'd be like, I feel, it sounds like they're dying in there. And the, the, the scientists would just keep saying, please continue, you must complete the test. At one point, they had the person behind the curtain fall completely silent. So there's no noise back there at all, no more screaming. And, and one of the subjects being studied kind of joked uncomfortably, I think we might have killed him, but they didn't stop. The scientists would just say, please continue the experiment. It's important you continue the experiment. It's amazing the power of the mind to rationalize when there is an authority figure who will take the blame for us. 
We know the story of the World War II, the Nazi Germany. It just, it, it wasn't that there was this one interesting little geographical patch of Europe, this whole country Germany was just filled with evil people. No, it just took one evil leader to take the blame, to take that, to, to help the citizens rationalize what they were doing. So they could say, I was just following orders. I was just following orders. And we could say, I'm just being a good citizen. And we turn our conscience over to another person. And we say, in the end, I'm not responsible, right? Because I just have to trust the source of authority, right? Um, I, I just, I have to trust them. These people being studied, they, they were made to think that they were very possibly killing someone. And they were able to tell themselves, no, I'm not a monster. I'm not a murderer. Uh, I, I'm just following orders. I'm not doing anything that, my, that the authority or my culture doesn't tell me it's perfectly okay to do. I'm still a good person. I'm still a good person. Shifra and Pua are not that person. They are not. They have an excuse. They have every excuse to say, well, this is, you know, this is, I, I, I'm being a good Egyptian here. I'm being commanded by my Pharaoh. It's my patriotic duty. The Pharaoh was considered the God on earth. So this is actually my religious duty. I am doing my religious duty. And they refuse. In verse 18, it says, the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, uh, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? I'm hearing all those babies crying. And look what they do next. First, they've disobeyed the order. Now they lie. They say the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous. They give birth before the midwives arrive. It's amazing, these Jews. Yeah, just, I mean, they're, they're just out there. They're working. They have a baby. They just keep working before we can even get there. They're so different from us Egyptians. It's almost like they're, they're kind of playing off of Pharaoh's prejudices, right? They're so different. Now, why is it they lie? So that they can keep their position and continue saving lives, Amen. right? If, if, they, if they fess up to what's happening, they're going to be removed and someone else will go in there and babies will be killed. And, and it's interesting. Apparently, Pharaoh, what he's telling them to do is, uh, is to arrive during the delivery. And as the baby is coming out, determine kind of subtly if the baby is a boy or a girl. And as it's as it's being delivered to kill it then so that the appearance looks like it's a, like a stillborn birth. Oh, I don't know. There's another stillborn birth. Something in the water, I guess, right? Because the, 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 the midwives are like, well, we get there too late, right? Once, once the baby's born, it's obvious. We can't just walk in and, you know, throw the baby in the Nile. You haven't given us that power, which he does later. That's his next step, by the way, because it always starts small, you plant a little fear first. Evil, racism, oppression. It always builds progressively. It doesn't just come out of the block in its final form. It starts with a little racist speech, attitudes, then systematic oppression. Eventually comes forcible removal. Pretty soon, when you get to open execution, it doesn't even seem so outrageous anymore. It was amazing. We were in Israel going to the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem, one of the most moving moments of our life. And they have on the wall just an amazing, just in full display, they put, they put not just the, you know, the, the pictures of the gas chambers, but 10 years earlier, 
the newspaper articles and the cartoons as the Jews were just starting to be made fun of. They're just being characterized and, and it, that's how it starts, right? The little cartoons being drawn of them and the way they just denigrate them. That came 10 years before the gas chambers. Anybody who studied world history knows, yep, that's how it happens. That's how it happens. But these two midwives, Shifra and Pua, Shifra and Pua, long may their names be, be spoken, I, which I think is awesome that Scripture names them because the Pharaoh of Egypt in Scripture is never named. <laughs> That's so awesome. <laughs> he doesn't get a name. He's just the Pharaoh. But Shifra and Pua, these midwives, they're named. Shifra and Pua do an extraordinary thing. They go against the law of their land. They go against the command of the king. They go against the voice of the culture. Even if, it means, even if it means not being a good daughter of Egypt. They want to be a child of God. They're conscientious objectors. These are the kind of people who, who sit in the front of the bus when they're told to go to the back. Right? These are the kind of people we saw a couple months ago in Russia that march on the Kremlin. Russian citizens marching on the Kremlin against this very popular war, even though it meant they were going to be arrested. These are the kind of people who hide Jews in their attic, the kind of people who smuggle Bibles across borders. We hear these stories of great heroes. But you know what? These are also the kind of people, just like you and me, in our community, in our town, who simply refuse to unleash hate against people that our team tells us to, people from the other side, people from the other people of the other color, the other country, the other orientation, the other congregation, the other, the other, the other. The Shifras and Puas of the world aren't just going on Facebook and like posting the big slam that they know we're going to get a bunch of likes. In fact, to be a Shifra and a Pua is often a very lonely stand. Their stand is often a lonely one. It can, you, uh, very often, most often, I would say, gets you in trouble with your own tribe. Those are the stands that get you in trouble with your own tribe. <laughs> the, uh, you know, over the years, the most venom-filled hate emails that I've ever received are not from sinners. They're not from them liberals. They're not from LGBTQ activists. They're from good old Christians who are convinced that the gospel of Christ takes a backseat to the flag. Anyway, not looking for sympathy, just your prayers. <laughs> what does God think about all this? So these, these ladies, they disobey, they lie. Oh my goodness, they're going to be in big trouble here. What does God think about all this sneakiness? It says in verse 10, God was kind to the midwives. The Hebrew people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, there's that again, they feared God. He gave them families of them, their own. He says he was kind to them and he gave them families of their own. There's like a double blessing here of blessing and approval that God, on behalf of God, there's no judgment for what they've done. No judgment for lying, which is normally not approved just to be on record, right? That is not approved by God. We know that from scripture. But here God says, you know what? You guys weren't lying to save your own skin. You're not bearing false witness against your brother. Because otherwise, y'all would have just, uh, just done what Pharaoh said. No, no, no. You, I can see that you disobeyed Pharaoh. You lied to him. 
to buy more time to keep risking your life to rescue others. Shifra and Pua lie for the cause of love. They lie for the cause of love. And listen, the world that we live in is not always black and white, as much as we want it to be. We wish it were. There's a lot of things we encounter every day that are complicated. It's not always easy to even tell you who's telling the truth, right? I talk to more people, and that's really their dilemma. They're not good or bad people. They're just like, I would do the right thing if I just knew who was, t- who was telling me the truth, you know? Who in all the media that we're listening to? I totally understand that. Just, we don't even know who's telling us the truth. So a lot of decisions that we make turn out to often pit one of your principles against another principle you hold dear, Right? You may believe in one thing, but you also believe in something else. And those sometimes feel like they're in conflict with each other. Which law do I follow? Which do I break? How do I know if I'm on the side of Christ? I can tell you. I can tell you how you know. It will always be the highest law of all. It looks like that. It's the self-sacrificial, cross-shaped law of love. Amen? So God pours his kindness out to Shifra and Pua. He blesses them with families. And what's interesting is the, the word used here for families, it's not just the word for having children that uh, is used elsewhere. The word here is a households. Uh, it, it means it, it's houses or dynasties. This is something that's, that's usually spoken of for males uh, and given that they were given great inheritances. So they were given households. What a beautiful way to bless a woman who's given her life in the delivery of children. These women are blessed by God with dynasties of ancestors of their own. And they stand as courageous examples to us. And examples of what Jesus later will come along and plainly teach us how to discern the heart of God through that loving example of Christ and then have the courage to go lay our lives down every day. Uh, I want to finish with a question to help tie this all together in this whole series. When you and I are put in a situation like Shifra and Pua faced, how do we respond to the authority figures in our life? How do we respond to the crowd who says, here, if you're a good American or you're a good Canadian, whatever country you're from, whatever that pressure is that you're feeling, whether it's from your leaders or it's from your neighbors or it's from your friends, if you are being pressured to put your your patriotism or to put your team loyalty or your party or your church or the company you work for or whatever philosophical bent you are, if you are being pressured to put that ahead of your Christianity, your identity in Christ, if it's something that clearly goes against the teaching of Christ, do you have the courage to say no? When everyone else is, when everyone else is going along, when everyone else is saying, no, come on, this is what we're doing, to say, no, this doesn't feel like Jesus. No. And are, are, are your eyes open to the different ways that we are often manipulated into to misplacing our allegiance?
Who's that person or that group that holds inappropriate control over your life? Who is it? You, you give them authority and then we can play the victim, right? We give them authority, we play the victim, we absolve ourselves of responsibility. Let me tell you, any version of I was just following orders is unacceptable for a follower of Christ. Amen? Because there's always going to be those. There's always going to be authority figures in our life that we can hand over way too much power and we allow them to make decisions for us and we develop this victim mentality. We become complicit in groupthink. It's a dangerous thing. And when we stand before God and he says, what on earth were you thinking acting and speaking and behaving so unloving like that. What are we going to say? I was just doing what was expected of me by my peers, by my culture, by my boss, my pastor, my friends, my team, my social group, because I forgot whose image I was created in and I forgot whose kingdom I represent. May that not be us. Amen. May that not be us. Lord, what Pharaoh, what tribe have you handed over your conscience to? Today you have permission. I absolve you. You have permission to break free from playing the victim. Okay? To break free from being complicit. You can take a stand. We don't take a stand for Instagram likes, right? We don't take a stand against whatever enemy the, the media tells us to fear today. We take a stand for love. We take a stand for love. It'll always look cross-shaped. We take a stand for love. And we remember what love is, right? If you were here last week, what does love look like? It looks like Jesus on a cross giving his life for others. And that is the stand we are called to take. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for being here with us today. I thank you, Lord for giving me the courage to speak some of this. I thank you, Lord, for your grace that it's revealed in such dramatic ways in this story, this Exodus chapter. I pray, Lord God, that you will continue to help us learn from the examples of these heroes, these women, these midwives who confront the most powerful man in their universe. And they take a stand, they risk everything for the cause of love. I thank you, Lord God, that Jesus just fleshes this out for me and my friends. <clears throat> May it call us to a higher standard. I pray for us, Lord God, that we would have the courage to move beyond victim mentality, to move beyond groupthink, and to rebel appropriately against those voices in our lives who ought not hold that authority over us any longer. May we desire not just to embrace your love, but to lay down our lives for other people. In Jesus' name I pray. <coughs> Amen. Amen. <coughs> if you'll stand to your feet, friends, our prayer partners are coming forward now. They would love to pray with you about anything going on in your life. If there's anything we can stand in faith with you about, whether you need a healing or a deliverance from a situation going on, rec reconciliation in a relationship, you need help with your finances, whatever it is. Or if you want to say yes to Jesus today for the first time, we would love to guide you into that next step. Praise the Lord. Our friends, I want to uh, lead you in a, 
invocation today out of, is out of 2 Corinthians 13, 14. May the love of the Father and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you in this day that we're living in. Amen? Grace and peace. Bye-bye.